series of pen forums we're calling twentieth century legacies i think most of you know that pen is a fellowship of twenty six hundred writers who work together to advance the cause of literature and defend free expression and to promote literacy uh... because i think of pen as a kind of quirky and sometimes irascible family of authors i think it's uh, especially appropriate that our new series sets out to explore the mysterious, uh, almost filial intimacy that often exists between writers and their slightly elder literary relatives. Uh, we've invited notable contemporary authors to talk about a 20th century master who has been important for them, who has influenced or sometimes even exasperated them into becoming the writers that they are. After tonight's, uh, I think, very auspicious start, we're planning an additional five evenings and ten writers over the next year and a half. Uh, writers and dates will be announced, but I'm happy to tell you that they will include the Irish poet Paul Muldoon on Robert Frost, Julian Barnes on Ford Maddox Ford, and Cynthia Ozick on Franz Kafka. If you would like to be on a mailing list, for this and for other Penn Forum programs, and we have a very interesting and stimulating program planned for the balance of this year um, in a variety of other areas, please fill out and drop off the card that I think has been given to many of you, and uh, somebody could hand you one if you didn't get one, and drop it off in, in um, the boxes that are set up at the back for that purpose. The idea for Legacies was the brainchild of our moderator and the series curator, uh, Bradford Morrow. Brad is the author of four novels, Come Sunday, The Almanac Branch, which was nominated for the Penn Faulkner Award, Trinity Fields, which was a Los Angeles Times Book Prize finalist, and Giovanni's Gift, as well as a collection of prose poems, A Bestiary. He's the founding editor of Conjunctions, which, 1981, which since 1981 has published more than 750 writers and artists and may be the most acclaimed literary journal being published today. Brad is now completing a new novel, The Prague Sonatas, as well as the second volume of his Trinity Fields series, Ariel. He also teaches at Bard College, where he is professor of literature and Bard Center fellow. I'd also like to say on a personal note that Brad may be the first writer I met after arriving in, in New York four months ago, and, it, and this was my very great good fortune. His warm welcome and the elan and enthusiasm that he brings to chairing Penn Forums and in launching this series uh, have been a new executive director's dream. It's my particular pleasure uh, to introduce Brad Morrow. Thank you. When I invited uh, Jamaica Kincaid to begin this Penn Forums Legacy series, her choice of who she would like to celebrate was immediate, absolutely immediate, uh, not a breath between, and at the time really surprised me. Gertrude Stein, she said. What a counterintuitive choice, I thought. How did Gertrude Stein so engage Jamaica Kincaid? that Stein would be her first choice of 20th century authors to celebrate. Well, then I began to reconsider Jamaica's novel, Lucy, 
every reader who encounters the prose of Gertrude Stein for the first time shares a Lucy-like sense of discovery, as if you'd always known the English language, but had never really seen or heard it revealed to you in quite that way before. In all its majesty and plainness, its frailty and tarnishment, but also in all its possible newness. When Lucy first arrives in New York, she looks at Manhattan from her cab and thinks, quote, twisting this way and that to get a good view of the sights before me, I was reminded of how uncomfortable the new can make you feel. Lucy arrives at her new home, where she'll work as an au pair. Ah, what a crisp metaphor for her changing, dividing self, I thought. And where she'll also come to discover herself in all the fullness of herself. And she tells us, quote, everything I was experiencing, the ride in the elevator, being in an apartment, eating day-old food that had been stored in a refrigerator was such a good idea that I could imagine I would grow used to it and like it very much. But at first it was all so new that I had to smile with my mouth turned down at the corners. Good narrative may remind you of things you've known, seen, heard, but great narrative draws you into its own meta-knowledge, even as it pitches you back at yourself defamiliarizes and refamiliarizes you at the same time. When I read the line, I had to smile with my mouth turned down at the corners, I thought, of course. That must have been precisely the look I had on my face when I first read Three Lives or Tender Buttons or the epically frowning, smiling, and all-embracing novel The Making of Americans which if you haven't read it, just read the, uh, the opening paragraph. The community that is Jamaica Kincaid and Gertrude Stein was becoming clearer. Listen to the sentence written by one of the two writers. That morning, the morning of my first day, the morning that followed my first night, was a stormy morning. Apparently simple, but not so simple. There are the overtones of mourning and mourning, that is, daybreak and grieving. There are the rhythmic purities that underscore the newness of that night, that particular day. Now a sentence by the other. There were as many chairs there, and there were, too, a chair that can be found everywhere. A rocking chair, that is to say. A rocking chair can be found everywhere. The legacy... The friendship, if you will, had dawned on me. One of the, these quotes is from Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid, of course. The other is from Gertrude Stein's Lucy Church Amiably. Another quote, I milked the cows, I churned the butter, I, sto I stored the cheese, I baked the bread, I brewed the tea, I washed the clothes, I dressed the children, the cat meowed, the dog barked, the horse neighed, the mouse squeaked, the fly buzzed. The goldfish living in the bowl stretched its jaws. Well, the repetition and spare clarities of each verb, each chore, connected to its venerable, age-old noun and true yield, bread baked, butter churned, milked cows, renders as a product of the unexpected process of its very cataloging and the goldfish that breaks the pattern renders the words fresh, vivacious, newly minted, 
Every word was once a poem, as Emerson nicely phrased that fundamental idea. Gertrude Stein understood that principle at the beginning of the century, just as Jamaica Kincaid understands it too. But now I could fairly ask myself and you, were those, and I'm, I'm sounding like <laughs> Gertrude Stein, but now I could fairly ask myself and you, <laughs> sorry, were those, were those words just now that made up a sequence of little individuated poems written by Jamaica Kincaid or Gertrude Stein? Were they the words of Jamaica Kincaid who left Antigua and writes about home as a universal place from her other home here in America? Or Gertrude Stein who left America, having said famously, actually she, she said it after she left, but there's no there there, at least speaking of Oakland, California, left America to write about it as a universal place from her adopted Paris. Kincaid, like Stein, is a profound and eloquent explorer of what it means to be an individual in society, what migrancy means, what is the meaning of identity within the context of family and who we are in relation to how we act toward those around us. Both are interested in the destinies we create for ourselves by the sum of choices we make, sometimes sad ones, such as what Kincaid so articulately evoked in My Brother, her dark memoir about her brother who died of AIDS, a young man whose, quote, face was sharp like a carving, like an image embossed on an emblem, a face full of deep suffering, beyond regrets or pleadings for a second chance. It was the face of someone who had lived in extremes, sometimes a saint, sometimes a sinner. And like Stein, whose autobiography of Alice B. Toklas meant to delineate a paradoxically equal, in paradoxically equal portions, the not very pseudonymous autobiographer and her alter ego, Jamaica Kincaid produced a spectacular fictional contemplation about how we invent ourselves, our pasts and future histories in her novel, The Autobiography of My Mother, a narrative that weighs the concepts of what might have been and what seem to be on scales of experience that are made above all of words. A novel, yes, about longing, fear, love, family, but also about the mysterious way in which language can capture its own truths in all its ineffabilities, such as in this sentence composed by a narrator who chose not even to utter her first words until she was four years old. And I spoke with her on the phone the other day, or her namesake. Quote, to that period of time called day, I profess an indifference. Such a thing is a vanity, but known only to me. All that is impersonal, I have made personal. Since I do not matter, I do not long to matter, but I matter anyway. Jamaica Kincaid's brilliant achievement is to understand that the resolution and objective of any journey is not its destination, but the journey itself and the process of passage. The fact that discovery of identity, history, social character comes as the result of thinking against and thinking with language is characteristic in Kincaid's work, Jamaica's work. This is true of Gertrude Stein's in very different but strikingly familiar as in familiar 
familial or, or family body of works. A final sample of what I saw was beginning to make perfect sense, that of Jamaica's choice, to honor Gertrude Stein tonight. Quote, four saints are never three. Three saints are never four. Four saints are never left altogether. Three saints are never idle. Four saints are, leave it to me, three saints when this you see. Begin three saints. Begin four saints. Two and two saints. One and three saints. In place, one should it easily saints. Very well saints have saints. Said saints as said saints and not annoy. Anoint. Choice. Fortunately, we don't have to choose. Tonight we have them both. The author of Four Saints in Three Acts, Gertrude Stein, and the author of the autobiography of my mother, Annie John, my brother, and other books, including At the Bottom of the River, where you can read the rest of that lilting, lovely story, The Letter from Home, which I just adore. I milk the cows, I churn the butter, by the saintly, splendid Jamaica Kincaid. Thank you. very much. Um, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm sure he meant someone else, not me. But um, I, I accept it anyway. Um, I, I, too many things to say. Um, and I'm just going to pretend I'm talking to you on the telephone and not in an auditorium. Um, uh, when I was asked to do this, I did immediately say Gertrude Stein, and I, I somehow got the idea that I was being asked to um, talk about an American author. I, didn't, I, I think it escaped me that it was um, just um, anyone from the, the 20th century um, of any nationality, but I immediately thought of an, um, of an American um, author. And it, uh, the reason I... Th it's been pointed out to me, uh, I would never um, want to um, uh, embarrass poor Gertrude Stein by saying she, uh, I am, uh, she's an influence on me because um, she might not want this product that I am um, to take responsibility for it. Uh, so, um, but it's been pointed out to me that there, that or asked, uh, I've been asked if this is an influence, and I, I, I at first am puzzled, was puzzled by it, but could see. Then eventually, when I knew more about her background, I could see how that might be so. Um, she is one of the few American authors I actually understand. Um, who's not a contemporary, and I say this, um, I'm, I'm very grateful for American authors, but I, on the whole, um, understand America through history, um, not through its um, novels. For instance, I don't really understand, um, I have to say, I don't understand Moby Dick um, at all, and I would even go further and say about... Um, uh, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald that I not only don't understand it, I don't like it. Um, uh, but then I understand and, and read voraciously um, Thomas Jefferson 
or um, or Frederick Douglass, but I don't understand uh, Richard Wright, but I understand Invisible Man, but um, as I say, not The Great Gatsby. I'm just going to go through all the things. Oh, I understand Harriet Jacobs. Um, um, lot of things in about America through its uh, American literature I do not understand. Um, but if I read uh, American history, then I understand America. It's just, uh, I don't think there's anything, um, I hope you won't be too hard on me for that, or, or it's just the way I am. On the other hand, I understand um, George Eliot or, or um, any of the Brontes very well. It's just, um, but even more so, I would understand, um, you know, Shakespeare or something much more than I would even understand Dickens. Anyway, it's just my um, literary heritage. I seem to be causing a unexpected disturbance. Uh, there, something, ah, oh, never mind. Um, just to explain how I come to all this uh, um, to you. So when I said Gertrude Stein, it, it's uh, really, she's a, an American author. I, I understand um, instinctively, without thinking for a, a minute that uh, there could be any resemblance. Um, but after thinking about it, the more people would say something like, um, oh, in her Steinian prose, I began to think, well, what exactly do I have in, um, in what, what exactly would, would be, um, why, why would this matter to me? Why would this writer matter to me? Why would people see a similarity? And um, the strange thing, strange I'm sure to her if I were to point this out, because I can find no real reference in her um, in her writing to this, um, I, I came to see that um, because uh, um, she was Jewish, she must have been uh, influenced in some way by the Hebrew Bible. Um, and I know that I am very influenced by the portion of the of the Bible that's called the Old Testament, that I read it um, obsessively as a child. It was sometimes the only thing I had to read. And read that part called the Old Testament more than the, um, the New Testament, because, uh, well, the New Testament, and I thought this um, when I was 11 years old, um, was full of different versions, and then it had the obnoxious Paul, um, and I never liked him, and, um, uh, and the letters to the Corinthians were always so harsh and so on. So I'd always skip to the uh, book of Revelations, which I would read again and again because it made me scared, and I would hide after I'd read it. I was sure the world was coming to an end. Um, but I could see that in, if there was an inf if there is an influence on me, if there is an influence I I can um, claim and and recognize and say clearly, it it would be the Bible. And I suppose the reason I can say it clearly is because, um, as far as I know, all the authors for the Bible are dead, and and in any case are very generous and wouldn't mind me. Um, but. 
Um, so anyway, what I thought I would do in, um, oh, by the way, you know, it's not um, something she seems to have claimed of, uh, as far as I can tell, things I've read um, too much. This, um, um, everyone now makes, you know, a very big claim for their identity, but she didn't seem to have made too much of a, of um, a claim on her being Jewish. In fact, it, I, I, much to my horror, she um, refused to leave, or not refused, but so much, avoid, uh, so much avoided leaving France during um, uh, the Second World War, and seemed uh, somehow not to have noticed that she was in particular danger because she was Jewish. Um, I can't find any um, reference to it, and I, I'm sure there is. I'm just too ignorant to have found it. Anyway, what I thought I would do um, is I would read um, just a couple of chapters of um, Genesis, and then I'd read some Stein, and I think my point about her, the influence on her will perhaps be a little clearer, perhaps not. And, um, but it's clear to me anyway, so just... Uh, Trust me on it and then disagree. But um, uh, the two chapters, six, um, six and seven, um, it's about Noah. And I could choose many other things, really. Um, but I happen to be uh, reading this, and, and I'm sort of slightly taken with it because I just found out um, something in both chapters that just as... Uh, God had decided to destroy the world and told Noah all the things to, to take, something that had escaped me as a child, um, um, that God tells Noah to take seven of the good animals and um, two of the bad ones. And it just struck me that if you were going to destroy the world because it was so bad, why save any of the bad things anyway? Um, but I, so when I came across that, I thought either... Um, uh, well, what I really thought was that God was Steinian or Stein was God, something like that. But now just forget I said that. So here is the book of um, uh, chapters 6 and 7 of Genesis. And you, you're probably cringing because you think it's... But it's not very long. And anyway, um, you probably haven't heard it in a while and it's worth... Hearing. And I just want you to, I tried to read it in a way that will make you um, take note of these repetitions. Um, uh, yeah, they're really quite amazing. Anyway, um, here it is, just the two, two chapters, and then I'll read you briefly from um, everybody's autobiography, um, uh, the introduction, and, and um, then I'll let you go to something really wonderful. Um, after this. Okay, here's how it goes. When men began to increase on earth and daughters were born to them, the divine beings saw how beautiful the daughters of men were and took wives from among those that pleased them. The Lord said, My breath shall not abide in man forever, since he too is flesh. Let the days allowed him be 120 years. It was then, and later too, that the Nephilim appeared on earth, when the divine beings cohabited with the daughters of men who bore them offspring. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. 
The Lord saw how great was man's wickedness on earth and how every plan devised by his mind was nothing but evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and his heart was saddened. The Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the men whom I created, men together with beasts, creeping things, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the line of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his age. Noah walked with God. Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth became corrupt before God. The earth was filled with lawlessness. When God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all flesh had corrupted its ways on earth, God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with lawlessness because of them. I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make it an ark with compartments and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make an opening for daylight in the ark and terminate it within a cubit of the top. Put the entrance to the ark in its side. Make it with bottom, second, and third decks. For my part, I am about to bring the flood, waters upon the earth, to destroy all flesh under the sky in which there is breath of life. Everything on earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. And all of that and of all that lives, of all flesh, you shall take two of each into the ark to keep alive with you. They shall be male and female, from birds of every kind, cattle of every kind, every kind of creeping thing on earth. Two of each shall come to, shall come to you to stay alive. For your part, take of everything that is eaten and store it away to serve as food for you and for them. Nor did just nor did so, just as God commanded him. So he did. Then the Lord said, said to Noah, Go into the ark with all your household, for you alone have I found righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean animal you shall take seven pairs, male and their mates, and of every animal that is not clean, two, a male and its mate. Of the birds of the sky also, seven pairs, male and female, to keep seed alive upon all the earth. For in seven days' time I will make it rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the earth all existence that I created. And Noah did just as the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came, waters upon the earth. Noah, with his sons, his wife and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of the clean animals, of the animals that are not clean, of the birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two of each, male and female, came to Noah into the ark, as God had commanded Noah, and on the seventh day the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the sixth hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst apart, and the floodgates of the sky broke open. 
the rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. That same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, went into the ark with Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, they and all beasts of every kind, all cattle of every kind, all creatures of every kind that creep on the earth, and all birds of every kind, every bird, every winged thing. They came to Noah into the ark, to each of all flesh in which there was breath of life. Thus they that entered comprised male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, and the waters increased and raised the ark so that it rose above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark drifted upon the waters. When the waters had swelled much more upon the earth, all the highest mountains everywhere under the sky were covered. Fifteen cubits higher did the waters swell as the mountains were covered, and all flesh that stirred on earth perished, birds, cattle, beasts, and all the things that swarmed upon the earth and all mankind. All in whose nostrils was the merest breath of life, all that was on dry land died. All existence on earth was blotted out, man, cattle, creeping things, and birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. All right, just to, uh, and do tell me if you find this quite wrong, uh, this, this uh, connection. Um, but I think it's quite right. Um, this is the preface to everybody's autobiography. And I'll, the preface is rather short, and then I can read you a little bit uh, of something more from it. Alice B. Toklas did hers, and now everybody will do theirs. Alice B. Toklas says, and if they're all going to do theirs the way she did hers. In the first place, she did not want it to be Alice B. Toklas. If it has to be she at all, it should be Alice Toklas. And in the French translation, it was Alice Toklas in French. It just could not be Alice B. Toklas. But in America and in England, too, Alice B. Toklas was more than Alice Toklas. Alice Toklas never thought so and always said so. That is the way any autobiogra autobiography has to be written, which reminds me of Dashiell Hammett. But before I am reminded of Dashiell Hammett, I want to say that just today I met Miss Hennessy and she was carrying, she did not have it with her, but she usually carried a wooden umbrella. This wooden umbrella is carved out of wood and looks exactly like a real one, even to the little button and the rubber string that holds it together. It is all right except when it rains. When it rains, it does not open, and so Miss Hennessy looks a little foolish, but she does not mind because, after all, it is the only wooden umbrella in Paris. And even if there were lots of them, it would not make any difference. Which does remind me of David Edstrom, but I have been reminded of him after I was reminded of Dashiell Hammett. It is very nice being a celebrity and a, a real celebrity who can decide who they want to meet and say so, and they come or do not come as you want them. 
I never imagined that would happen to me, to be a celebrity like that, but it did, and when it did, I liked it, but all that will come much later. Anyway, I was a celebrity, and when I was at Pasadena, Mrs. Ehrman, whom I met at Carl Van Vechten's in New York, asked us to come over to meet asked us to come over to Beverly Hills and dine with her. Whom did we want to meet? Anybody she liked, we said. She said she would get, she would get Charlie Chaplin and the Emersons and some others, not more than 12 in all. Would that do? Yes, and Alice Toklas hung up. Later on in the day, I never get up early. I Later on in the day, I never get up early. I get up as late as possible. I like not to get up in the morning, and no one ever wakes me anyway. I was told about it and, and was pleased. Then suddenly the next day, I said, but I did want to meet Dashiell Hammett, and somebody, somebody in New York said he was in California. I never was interested in crossword puzzles or any kind of puzzles, but I do like detective stories. I never try to guess who has done the crime, and if I did, I would be sure to guess wrong. But I like somebody being dead, and how it moves along, and Dashiell Hammett was all that and more. So Al Alice Toklas rang up Mrs. Ehrman and said, we wanted to meet Dashiell Hammett. She said, yes, what is his name? Dashiell Hammett, said Miss Toklas. And how do you spell it? Alice Toklas spelt it. Yes, and where does he live? Ah, uh, that, said Alice, we do not know. We asked in New York, and Knopf, his editor, said he could not give his address. Ah, yes, said Mrs. Ehrman. Now, what is he? Dashiell Hammett, you know, the thin man, said Alice Toklas. Oh, yes, said Mrs. Ehrman, yes. And they both hung up. We went to dinner that evening, and there was Dashiell Hammett, and we had an interesting talk about autobiography. But first, how did he get there, I mean, at Mrs. Ehrman's to dinner? Between them, they told it. Mrs. Ehrman called up an office he had at Hollywood and asked for his address. She was told he was in San Francisco. Then she called up the producer of The Thin Man. He said Hammett was in New York. So Mrs. Ehrman, to herself, he... So, said Mrs. Ehrman to herself, he must, be in, he must be in Hollywood. So she called up the man who had wanted to produce The Thin Man and had failed to get it, and he gave Hammett's address. Mrs. Ehrman telegraphed to Hammett, saying, would he come that evening and dine with her to meet Gertrude Stein? It was April Fool's Day, and he did nothing, and then he looked up Ehrman, and it was a furrier, and no Mrs. Ehrman, and then he asked everybody and heard that it was all true, and telegraphed and said if he might bring who was to be and said if he might bring who was to be his hostess, he would come, and Mrs. Ehrman said, of course come, and they came. His hostess, but all that will come when the dinner happens later. Anything is an autobiography, but this was a conversation. I said to Hammett, there is something that is puzzling. In the 19th century, the men, when they were writing, did invent all kinds and a great number of men. The women, on the other hand, never could invent women. They always made the women be themselves, seeing splendidly or sadly or heroically or beautifully or despairingly or gently, and they never could make any other kind of woman. From 
From Charlotte Bronte to George Eliot, and many years later, this was true. Now in the 20th century, it is the men who do it. The men all write about themselves. They are always themselves as strong or weak or mysterious or passionate or drunk or controlled, but always themselves as the women used to do in the 19th century. Now you yourself always do it now. Why is it? He said, it's simple. In the 19th century, men were confident. The women were not, but in the 20th century, the men have no confidence, and so they have to make themselves, as you say, more beautiful, more intriguing, more everything, and they can't, cannot make any other man because they have to hold on to themselves, not having any confidence. Now, I, he went on, have even thought of doing a father and a son to see if in that way I could make another one. That's interesting, I said. Anyway, autobiography is easy, like it or not, autobiography is easy for anyone, and so this is to be everybody's autobiography. As I said, after I was reminded of Dashiell Hammett, I was reminded of David Edstrom, and that happened in Los, An Los Angeles, too. David Edstrom was the big Swede who was a sculptor and was thin when I first knew him and then enormously fat and married the head of the Paris Christian Science Church and then, well, and then she was dead. But so he says that has nothing to do with him. I had not seen him for years and never expected to see him again. When we were at Pasadena, there he was on the telephone. One of the things that was funny about being in America was that so little of my past came up. I went to school with, with lots of them and to college at Radcliffe and medical school and no lots in Paris, but not a great many turned up. However, Edstrom did. He telephoned and said, will you come? We came. He was as fat as ever, a little older, and now was doing a statue of some benefactor. Was it Jenny Lind, or Grace Darling, or Florence Nightingale? Well, anyway, he wanted us to be photographed together. Being photographed together reminds me of another one. However, we were not photographed together, but what reminded me of David Edstrom was that he used to complain so that I liked everybody in character. In those comparatively young days I did, I thought everybody had a character, and I knew it, and I liked them to be in character. Now, well, they are in character, I suppose so, but I would like it just as well if they were not anyway. If they are, or if they are not, is not exciting to me now. Anything that is, is quite enough if it is. What is it, Helen says, our old servant who has come back to us? There is too much of nothing, or there is never enough of anything. Well, anyway, being photographed together reminds me of another thing, and then chapter one will begin. In New York, a great many places wanted us to come, but was natural enough, but we did not go. We did not go at all, because in that way, it was easy to say so, but Alice Toklas felt that when the women writers asked us to tea, we had to go. She feels that way from time to time, so she said, yes, we would come. Max White and Lindley Hubble had come to see us, and we took them along. Lindley Hubble had been for many years a comfort to me. He read all I wrote, and he always told me so warmly that he had. I had thought that he would be tallish, that he would be a tallish, pale and sympathetic New Englander. Not at all. He was short and dark and neat and firm, and he attends to all the maps in the Astor Library. 
Well, however, we went to tea, and there were a good many writers and others there. I drifted around, and then I saw a short little woman with a large head, and there were curls, but I did not notice them. We were asked to meet each other, Mary Pickford and I. She said she wished she knew more French, and I said I talked it all right, but I never read it, and I did not care about it as a written language. She said she did wish she did know more French, and then, I do not quite know how it happened, she said, and suppose we should be photographed together? Wonderful idea, I said. We were by this time standing near a couch where Belle Green was seated. I, never, I had never met Belle Green before, although everybody I knew knew her. It is funny about meeting and not meeting, not that it makes any difference if you don't want, don't if you do, do you do? Nathalie Barney was just telling me that her mother often asked her to come in and meet Whistler. Even if you do not care about his pictures, he will amuse you, she said. But Nathalie Barney was always busy writing a letter whenever her mother happened to ask her, and so she never met him. Mary Pickford said it would be easy to get the journal photographer to come over. Yes, I will telephone, said someone rushing off. Yes, I said it would be wonderful. We might be taken, shaking hands. You are not going to do it, said Belle Green excitedly behind me. Of course I am going to, I said. Nothing would please me better, of course. We are, we are said. Nothing would please me better, of course. We are said, I turning to Mary Pickford. Mary Pickford said, perhaps I will not be able to stay. And she began to back away. Oh, yes, you must, I said. It will not be long now. No, no, she said. I think I had better not. And she melted away. I knew you would not do it, said Belle Green behind me, and then I asked everyone, because I was interested, just what it was that went on inside Mary Pickford. It was her idea, and then when I was enthusiastic, she melted away. They all said that what she thought was, if I were enthusiastic, it meant that I thought that it would do me more good than it would do her, and so she melted away. Or others said, perhaps, after all, it would not be good for her audiences that we should be photographed together. Anyway, I was very much interested to know just what they knew about what is good publicity and what is not. Alfred Harcourt was very surprised when I said to him in first meeting him in New York, remember, this extraordinary welcome that I am having does not come from the books of mine that they do understand like the autobiography, but the books of mine that they do not understand. And he called his partner and said, listen to what she says, and perhaps she is right. Well, anyway, we all went away, and as we came downstairs, there was an elderly colored man, and he came up to me and said, Miss Gertrude Stein, and I said yes, and he said, I am, I have forgotten the name, I was the first music teacher of Miss, Mr. Matthews, who sang St. Ignatius, and I wanted to say, how do you do to you, and I was very touched. And then we four, Max White, Lindley Hubble and Alice Toklas and I walked down Fifth Avenue together, and my book, Portraits and Prayers, was just to come out that day, and on the cover was to be a photograph of me by Carl Van Vechten, and as we were walking down Fifth Avenue together, a young colored woman smiled and slowly pointed, and there it was, a copy of the book in a shop window, and she smiled and went away. That was what New York was, and that will come later, but before all that, we had stayed on in France. Thank you.
I think that will be, yeah, I'll just let that go. And um, Mr. Gass, thanks again. You know, what's so funny is that uh, actually is that Hemingway claimed the uh, the Bible for himself, didn't he, Bill? And uh, uh, Hemingway said his greatest influence, if I'm not mistaken, was the King James Bible, 1611. That's what gave him that rough and ready and tidy, uh, short, stone-cropped uh, appearance. So I, I, I didn't know that... Uh, now, now it's all reversed. It's all, it's all, it's all made better. Uh, William Gass is a writer I've always thought of as influenced by Gertrude Stein. In so, as a matter of fact, insofar as a writer as original as Gass uh, shows influence, we all do. Uh, Jamaica Kincaid's Lucy and Gertrude Stein's Lucy Church. Not so very amiably, as a matter of fact. I have a male fictional quasi-homonym, if not a counterpart, in the person of a man named Lacey in, in uh, Gass's first novel, Amonsetter's Luck. Quote, careful, Lacey. He'd nearly forgot, had an ass like an ape, like fishing, said, Israbestus tot. Is that right? Is that how you pronounce it? Israbestus taught. Some, fishing's fun. I like sledding better. I like, well, sledding's fun too. You're pretty old. How old are you? Pretty old. Stein the lover of stone-hard little words that shape the reader's thinking mind is present in this passage, I think, and is, as I believe Gass would agree, an impressing spirit in much of his work. And yet, like Jamaica... Bill made up his mind very quickly as to who he would like to celebrate tonight. And it, it wasn't Stein. I, was, uh, I thought, Stein. Uh, to paraphrase one of Rilke's translators, and there have been many, Rilke is the truest poet of memory, the rememberer of childhood, of leave-taking and looking back, the poet of night and its vastnesses, the poet of human separations, the poet of thresholds, the poet especially of solitude in its endless inflections. And although uh, Gass will scold me later for saying so, uh, I think the same might be said of William H. Gass, master essayist, novelist, short story writer, one of our finest stylists, a writer willing to and about to be uh, freaked by the New York Times book review th this Sunday, as usual. Uh, <laughs> I, I, why did I say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, that's what happens. Uh, let me start again. Master essayist, novelist, short story writer, one of our finest stylists, a writer willing to wrestle even with the oddest forms from the limerick to the novella. Bill Gass shows in all of his writing a deep concern with the endless possibilities of inflection, with patterns and overtones, with the frictions of language. And that makes him ultimately a poet. And this is why I'll get scolded, because he'll claim he's not. 
and his own poetry of memory, childhood, human solitudes of triumph and failure, of guilt, spiritual dislocation, all conjured with singular lushness of language, brings Rilke, whom Gass has been reading and translating for years, to mind. In the seemingly spontaneous and deeply felt sonnets to Orpheus, Rilke's sharpness of philosophic thought comes to the surface, then recomplicates itself as it disappears again. It's like one of those koi fishes that comes up and changes shape and then goes down and then comes up and you, I thought it was orange, but now it's yellow. Uh, quote, the reader's freedom is a holy thing. Gass asserts in one of his great essays, the same essay in which he declares his job as a novelist is to, quote, screw up stories, close quote. Rilke in the sonnets marvelously pre-echoes this thought. Will transformation be inspired by the flame where thing made of change conceals itself? And what is a thing more made of change, more transforming, more willful and aflame than words? Like Gertrude Stein, William Gass was trained in philosophy. Indeed, he, stud he studied uh, with uh, Wittgenstein. In his new book, a collection of novellas called Cartesian, and that's Ludwig Wittgenstein, by the way, called uh, Cartesian Sonatas, he references Descartes and thereby the tradition of logical thought and argument and qualitative judgment. But sonata is also a musical term, and Gass, like Rilke, is also a musician, and what a glorious, shameless musician he is, or they are, like Jamaica, like those wonderful translators of the King James Bible who have been accused of actually being Shakespeare. Um, well, that's another story for another day. Um, Gass's On Being Blue is, despite its author's intentions, about something, the signifier blue, a color, a myth, a multiplicity of meanings. But it is most importantly in and of itself about language. It is a linguistic, musical sequencing of sounds based on the notion of blue. Quote, read this book if you haven't. Blue pencils, blue noses, blue movies, laws, blue legs and stockings, the language of birds, bees and flowers as sung by longshoremen, that lead-like look the skin has when af affected by cold, contusion, sickness, fear, the rotten rum or gin they call blue ruin. In this most recent collection of essays, Finding a Form, Gas writes that, quote, language is not the low-born gawky servant of thought and feeling, it is need, thought, feeling, and perception itself. The shape of the sentence, the song in its syllables, the rhythm of its movement is the movement of imagination. This proposition is illustrated very nicely in an occasional poem written by Rilke in 1918 after a private concert at the home of Hannah Wolf, a token of gratitude given to Frau Wolf entitled to music, which is a little part, music, breathing of statues, possibly, Stillness in pictures, speech where speech ends, time upright and poised upon the coastline of our passions. Feelings for whom? You are the transformation of all feeling into what? Audible landscape? Form and content merge in a language 
such as this, a translation of Rilke by Gass, and Gass's magisterial novel, The Tunnel, one of the most lovingly composed analysis of hatred, one of the most successfully written works about human failure, failure to finish, failure to think, to empathize, to flourish. My dad wouldn't let me have a dog, a dog, a dog we don't need. My mom made the neighbors spitz her pal by poisoning it with the gin she sprinkled on the table scrapes. Feed it somewhere else, my dad said, a dog we don't need. Skipping ahead. My dad wouldn't let me have a pal. Who will walk that pal, he said. I will. And it's going to be snowing or it's going to be raining and who will be waiting in the vacant lot at the corner of the cold, in the cold wet wind waiting for the damn dog to do his business? Not you, Billy boy. Christ, you can't be, even be counted on to bring in the garbage cans or mow the lawn. So, no dog. There are many interesting things about this wicked medley of paternal rationales for the narrator father keeping from his son who would so normally and naturally make his son happy, but not the least of them is that the repressed inevitably revolt. The final lines of this fugue from the tunnel read, my dad wouldn't let me have a dog. A dog? A dog we don't need, he said. So I was damned if I would fetch. Which brings us back to the dichotomous, tumultuous, and often longing world of Rainer Maria Rilke. Rilke's universe is both vast and microcosmic, hopeful and diametric and rebellious as Billy Boys. From Rilke's notebooks of Malta Laritz Brigge, the boy narrator musing on the meaning of responsibility within the context of familial imbalances of power says frankly, I am afraid. One has to take some action against fear, though, once one has encountered it. In other words, I'm damned if I will fetch. Rilke's so-called non-autobiographical, but coincidentally very Rilke-like narrator of the genre-bending notebooks, like Rilke, Gass reinvents genre every chance he gets, goes on to write, when I think back to my home where there is nobody left now, I imagine that formerly this must have been otherwise. The children had a little death within them, and the grown-ups a big one. Like Rilke, William Gass is a consummate chronicler of the emergent and elementary who encounter as they grow up the inexplicable, the soulful, and yes, dangerous adults who have exactingly prepared their annihilation. What is it that allows the individual any chance of survival against what Rilke's bragging idiot claims in the poetry cycle, The Voices, which is a very strange group of poems, when, the confidence he assured, when with confidence he assures us, quote, they don't stop me, they let me go. They say that nothing bad will happen, that's good, right? Well, one answer to this question is that Gass and Rilke share a fundamental belief. Again, in language, our most dangerous and precious gift. Just as in Rilke's poem about the act of reading, Der Lesande, we find ourselves, when reading, a page of gas is often, quote, gazing into its lines as into faces whose looks grow dark from deep reflection. And the result of this process is that when now I lift my eyes from the book, nothing will seem alien. Gas, Rilke, 
Kincaid, Stein, we all participate in this unique and common everyday activity of reading and never forget that reading is a form of writing that causes us to understand the world outside our individual windows or as with music to activate the mystery of how language when handled with care causes, and I'm paraphrasing Rilke, what's within us to surround us the very way the most skillful horizon does or the other side of the air, pure and immense. Even as Rilke so successfully voiced his work in so many different formal shapes and anatomies, so has Gass taken on old forms of the essay, novella, the story, the novel, and refashioned them to his own imaginative harmonies. In his essay, and I'm just about done, The Music of Prose, Gass wrote, quote, no prose can pretend to greatness if its music is not also great if it does not indeed construct a surround of sound to house its meaning the way flesh was once felt to embody the soul, at least till the dismal day of the soul's eviction and the flesh's decay. A little excerpt from Rilke's Tell Us Poet reads, Tell us, poet, what do you do? I praise. But the dreadful, the monstrous, and their ways, how do you stand them, suffer it all? I praise. What chance have you in so many forms under each mask to speak a true phrase? I praise William Gass. It's of course wonderful for me to be here tonight. Um, and uh, uh, particularly to participate in a celebration of two writers who are probably the most close uh, uh, to my own heart, uh, as Stein and Rilke are. Uh, and indeed, when Brad suggested this con conjunction, uh, Jamaica Kincaid and myself, and I was very honored to be even in the same town, I thought, uh, uh, this is, is great, and I know exactly uh, which uh, writer I will choose. And he said, Jamaica is doing uh, Stein. And I said, drat. <laughs> um, uh, let's make it Rilke. <laughs> uh, but in a way, the Rilke is uh, more emotionally close. Uh, Stein has taught me more, perhaps. Uh, uh, you can take away uh, from uh, a, an author who isn't quite as great uh, more sometimes than you can uh, manage to dare steal from someone as overwhelming as Milton or as in the case of Stein, uh, and I mean in the case of Rilke. Uh, and I was always surprised too to find I was so hooked on this writer, hooked in a totally um, uh, uh, accurate way in, in the word, because uh, I have to have my Rilkin fix each day. Um, and I don't always get it. it, it's, it the, uh, the closest analogy is uh, uh, getting uh, enough alcohol in you every day, which I manage much better. Um, but it's very similar, the intoxication, the dependency, 
uh, the exhilaration, usually false, because for a moment you think you are the poet you are reciting. Uh, now, Rilke also had this enormous uh, uh, draw for me because um, he, he was, he's an idea poet, um, among many other things. And some of these ideas were very close to me, not in the sense of acceptance always, uh, but in the, often in the sense of rejection, but the kind of rejection you keep doing. I reject you today. I reject you tomorrow. I reject you the next week. Uh, and then one is always keeping this around in order to reject it. Uh, the first uh, poem uh, that I want to read from these efforts of mine over many years to read Rilke, not to really translate him, um, but to get to, through the process of trying to translate him, some sense of how he went about his business. Um, uh, the first one I, I want to read has to do with the, the uh, relationship he had, first with his mother, and then secondly with the religion which she pretended to represent. Um, his mother, of course, was a person of immense hypocrisy, uh, through which the young Rilke saw quite quickly. Uh, dressed by her uh, like a, uh, a, a doll, uh, dressed uh, as a female, um, probably as late as the age of eight, uh, and uh, uh, was uh, someone who affected great amount of piety, uh, but he noticed that her piety was very much like her motherly love. It came and went. It, uh, it was largely show. Uh, she liked to dandle the young Rilke in front of her guests and then drop him and put him away. And of course, he thought of himself very much as a doll uh, and his fondness, uh, or rather his, his connection, his relationship to dolls and puppets. I'll touch on a little later. Um, he uh, is uh, 20 years old when he writes this in a book called In Celebration of Myself. My mother spreads her presence at the feet of those poor saints hewn of heartwood. Mute, unmoving, and amazed, they stood behind the pews so straight and complete. They neglected to thank her, too, for her fervently offered gift. The little dark her candles lift was all of her faith they knew. Still, my mother gave, in a paper roll, these flowers with their fragile blooms, which she took from a bowl in our modest rooms, in the sight and longing of my soul. And throughout Rilke's work, uh, we have uh, the use of religious imagery uh, by a poet who has um, uh, uh, departed from a religion, particularly from the, the faith of his mother. Uh, and so it has still got this enormous hold over him. And I, as an atheist from as early a period as I can possibly remember anything, um, keep returning, nevertheless, to religious imagery and religious characters. Uh, and so I was also drawn to Rilke's uh, uh, reuse in a pagan world of the religious imagery of his mother's religion. Uh, and uh, 
one of the best examples I know of this is how he adapts a religious stance uh, in order to celebrate a non-religious feeling. He is in love with Lou Salome, uh, and he's going to write about her in, and his love for her, but in a book which is dedicated uh, to uh, the deity in effect, uh, and uh, which will uh, be in the tone of a poem addressed to the deity, uh, but it's, of course, to Lou. Put my eyes out, I can still see. Slam my ears shut, I can still hear. Walk without feet to where you were, and tongueless speak you into being. Snap off my arms, I'll hold you hard in my heart's longing like a fist. Halt that, my brain will do its beating. And if you set this mind of mine aflame, then on my blood I'll carry you away. When he arrives in Paris, and appropriately at a period very close to the turn of the century, to the arrival in Paris also of Gertrude Stein, um, not only is he affected by uh, Rodin, who he has ostensibly come uh, to write about and whose secretary he, of course, becomes, uh, and uh, of the lessons he learns from Rodin's method of work, uh, if not the work itself, um, but he is also, just as Stein was, engaged not only in the discovery of the art immediately around him and artists immediately around him, but also the work of Cezanne um, and the writing of Flaubert. And these figures, too, were extraordinarily important to me in forming uh, what I thought art ought to be. Um, and in a way, uh, the effect of, of these works of art was to people his consciousness with value when the world around him uh, in his loneliness and his poverty seemed totally without value or with negative value as the opening pages of Malta Lord's Briga are so eloquent in conveying. And this is a poem called Autumn Day written in 1902 and I'm going through these poems roughly in the order in which they were written. Lord, it is time. The summer was too long. Lay your shadow on the sundials now and through the meadows let the winds throng. Ask the last fruits to ripen on the vine. Give them further two more summer days to bring about perfection and to raise the final sweetness in the heavy wine. Whoever has no house now will establish none. Whoever lives alone now will live on long alone. Will waken, read, and write long letters wander up and down the barren paths the parks expose when leaves are blown. Rilke was developing at this time um, a theory of the relationship of life to death, which committed, I think, a fundamental logical error. Uh, that is, he confused living and dying, which are, of course, in order to die, you do have to be alive. Um, but life and death are not uh, the same kind of, of uh, contraries. Uh, but he liked to think of life and death in the ordinary sense as a continuum. Uh, 
Uh, he also liked to, to feel uh, that if people were left alone, properly allowed their freedom to choose, uh, then their own death would grow within them uh, the way in which a child grows in the mother. Uh, this, of course, had catastrophic results in his own life with some of his friends, but also as the fruit of their own existence. To die your own death um, became not simply allowing doctors to rule you when you died, and he certainly tried to avoid that, uh, but rather simply to live in such a way that you die of your own life. Um, and uh, this is, a, a, again, um, uh, one of the many ideas which I just love. I don't know that it's true, um, uh, but uh, maybe it ought to be. Uh, o Lord, grant each of us our own ripe death, the dying fall that goes through life, its love, significance, and need like breath. For we are nothing but the bark and burrs. The great death we bear within ourselves is the fruit which every growing serves. For its sake, young girls grow their charms as if a tree-like music issued from a lyre. For its sake, small boys long to shoulder arms and women lean on them to listen and inspire those not yet men to share their hearts' alarms. For its sake, all that's seen is seen sustained by change itself, as if the frozen were the fire. And the work of every artisan maintained this myth and made a world out of this fruit, brought frost to it, wind, sunlight, rain, and into it life's warmth has followed suit. Heart's heat absorbed the fever of the brain, yet when the angels swoop to pick us clean, they shall find that all our fruits are green. He was learning at this time, uh, of course, to change his ideas about poetry. Uh, he began as a very glib uh, and very accomplished uh, writer. Um, often this glibness led to something more significant. But his notion about poetry and his own nature uh, was uh, that he would go about watering the wor world with his poems. I think of it as pissing on the world. Um, relieving himself, in other words, uh, into whatever uh, handy container, namely a poem, uh, that he could find. Uh, this, of course, is an attitude which also grew out of his enormous romantic notion about being a poet. Uh, he thought that in order to be a poet, you had to be a poet. And then you wrote poetry. Now, almost no one thinks that now. M most of the people I know are professionals. Gertrude Stein had some wonderful things to say about that, uh, as a matter of fact. She warned the writer that the moment they said, I'm a novelist, I better write novels, they were not any longer writers. Um, but the, the point that Rilke wanted to do was constantly work on himself in such a way as to be the poet. Uh, and that meant to be above ordinary, tawdry things, never to have 
miserly and mean thoughts. Actually, going to the bathroom was a problem. Uh, he couldn't, of course. He was very abstemious. Um, uh, and uh, uh, he, he couldn't show lust. That was embarrassing. Um, uh, for someone who lived alone much of his life uh, in, in, uh, in lonely rooms uh, uh, and was uh, uh, suffering uh, constantly from the temptations of masturbation, this was a real falling off, to say the least, uh, of his ideal of what a poet ought to be. Now, if you became the right sort of person, then uh, you would be the poet, and then, of course, the poetry would simply arrive. We think that in order to be a poet, you just write poetry, and if you write poetry that's bad enough, long enough, you may become a poet who writes mediocre poetry for a while. He also um, uh, thought about the very close identity that the poet had to have with the things he's writing about. And, 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 and Rodin, of course, teaches him uh, to make poems as hard as things and to view the world and take it in instead of going around, you know, draping his little soul over stuff. Uh, first, you have to have a soul. And he understood this very well. And he went through this agonizing period in Paris uh, observing, taking in, close scrutiny. Uh, this was, of course, helped by the great uh, 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 lessons of Cézanne and of Flaubert. Uh, and so he writes the thing poems, as they're called, and here is one of the most famous, the panther. His gaze from the passing of the bars has grown so worn that it sees nothing anymore. There seem to be a thousand bars before him, and beyond that thousand, nothing of the world. The supple motion of his panther's stride as he pads through a tightening circle is like the dance of strength around a point on which an equal will stands stupefied. Only rarely is an opening in the eyes enabled, then an image brims which slides the quiet tension of the limbs until the heart wherein it dies. Rilke has, uh, because in part of his relationship to his mother, um, um, a very uh, a strange, in a way, relation with women. It's um, hello, goodbye, or aloha. Uh, and uh, uh, he has develops uh, partly out of uh, rationalization, a theory which has a great deal to be said for it, I think, of non-possessive love. Uh, in Rilke's case, this often meant love by post. Um, and he wrote a great many marvelous love letters. We tend to forget, of course, that, that Rilke was one of the great prose writers of the 20th century and wrote not only the novel Malta Loritz Brigge, which I think is one of the great novels, uh, but also uh, thousands of letters, which were rehearsals uh, for his poetry very often. Uh, and uh, uh, in these uh, letters which he sent, uh, of course, to uh, women of various uh, aristocratic sorts, of course, they usually did have um, 
uh, some status in the world, uh, uh, particularly uh, a cottage that could be occupied by a poet during a certain part of the year. Um, and uh, these uh, letters were quite overwhelming. If you were to get such a thing, uh, you would indeed swoon. Um, uh, you know, so much for the piano teacher. Uh, and, uh, and, and at the same time, Rilke was constantly disengaging. Uh, and, and engagement with Rilke was uh, literally a disengagement. But it was broadened also uh, to uh, include everything because Rilke was fundamentally a Stoic. He was like the person who, having bought a new CD, imagines already that it is uh, 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 asked to be loaned to a friend who has a wretched set and uh, who will ruin the tape. So you're already getting read of it uh, before you've even listened to it. This is a poem he, he wrote called Parting, which I think expresses that very well. How I have felt it, that nameless state called parting, and how I feel it still, a dark, sharp, heartless something that displays, holds out with unapparent hands a perfect union to us while tearing it in two. With what wide open eyes I've watched whatever was while calling to me, loosening its hold remaining on the road behind as though all womankind, yet small and white and nothing more than this, a waving which has blown the hair beyond its brow, a slight continuous flutter, scarcely now explicable, perhaps the tremor of a plum tree and the bough a startled cuckoo has set free. This notion uh, then of the identity of the poet uh, with the world in order, in fact, to render it in language and by rendering it in language, save it from the flux, save it from change, um, is reflected also in the poem he wrote in Paris again in 1906 called The Death of the Poet. He lay, his pillow-propped face could only stare with pale refusal at the quiet coverlet. Now that the world and all his knowledge of it, stripped from his senses to leave them bare, had fallen back to an indifferent year. Those who had seen him living could not know how completely one he was with all that flowed. For these, these deep valleys, each meadowed place, these streaming waters were his face. Oh, his face embraced this vast expanse which seeks him still and woos him yet. Now his last mask, squeamishly dying there, tender and open, has no more resistance than a fruit's flesh spoiling in the air. I do want to uh, quote a one more of these types of poems and then a couple elegies and that'll be it. Um, uh, this one is rarely uh, talked about um, and was left out of one of uh, his collections. Um, it's not quite clear to me why except for the nature of its content. Uh, it's called Puppet Theater. It's very unusual type of poem for Rilke. It's brutal. 
um, he is usually, um, he can be brutal, uh, but uh, usually behind a, uh, a, a kinder uh, web of words. Puppet theater. Behind bars, like beasts, they pile up their behavior. Their voice is not theirs, though they swing their arms and swords with great variety, as if catching an outcry to copy while on the wing. Their limbs have no joints and hang awkwardly in their rig of wires, which doesn't prevent them from killing or dancing or bowing and scraping like a courtier to a king. With them, memory has no point. They wring their awareness dry, and all they retain inside them they generally employ to beat upon their breast till it's unable to resist. They know all breasts are beaten so. Their large and formal faces are there for all to see, simpler than ours, more forceful and ideal, open as eyes seem when awakening from a dream, a sight which makes laughter rise from the pit like steam. For those on the benches see how the puppets pound, wound, and frighten one another, and collapse in loose heaps, dead of their exertions. If anyone were to understand it differently and fail to laugh at their consternations, the puppets would replace their play to reenact a last judgment day. They would yank on their wires to pull before the painted porch the hands that hidden high above had danced them into their desires, hands hideously red, gloved no longer, and they would pour from every door and climb those wires and cardboard walls to set their former land afire and assassinate those hands. Um, the Ultimate Thing poem, my, one of my favors, favorites, uh, contains in one uh, uh, sonnet um, Rilke's real aesthetic. And it's uh, perhaps the most famous of the thing poems, Torso of an Archaic Apollo. Never will we know his legendary head where the eye's apples slowly ripened. Yet his torso glows as if his look were set above it in suspended globes that shed a street's light down. Otherwise the surging breast would not thus blind you, nor through the soft turn of the loins could you feel his smile pass easily into the bright groins where the genitals yearned. Otherwise this stone would not be so complete from its shoulder showering body into absent feet, or seem as sleek and ripe as the pelt of a beast. Nor would that gaze be gathered up by every surface to burst out blazing like a star. For there's no place that does not see you. You must change your life. And Rilke did have the view, I think, uh, that the work of art did surpass in its reality uh, the reality of most human beings. Uh, I want to turn uh, for the last poem uh, to the elegies. These are the poems, of course, that intrigued me most from the beginning um, and uh, for which I, I struggled many, many years uh, to 
get anything out of in terms of a, a, a kind of line that would work at all. Um, and yet they are, I think, easier to translate because there are more ideas in them than the sonnets, which are so swift and light, it's almost impossible to render them. Uh, and I'll just read in closing, um, because it is a closure in a way, uh, not the tenth elegy, uh, but the ninth, which is my favorite and perhaps my favorite poem. Why, if the seasons of life could be passed as a laurel, a little darker than all other green, with tiny waves on the edge of each leaf, like the smile of a wind. Why then must we be human, and shunning our destiny, long for fate? Oh, not because happiness, that prophet snatched hastily from threatening loss, exists. Not from curiosity, not simply to practice a heart that could live quite as well in a laurel, but because it is much just to be here, because all that is fleeting here needs us, strangely concerns us, us most fleeting of all. Just once, everything, only once, once and no more, and we as well, once, then never again. But this having been once, although only once, having been earthed, can it ever be canceled? And so we push ourselves on and pray to achieve it, to hold it in our simple hands, in our ever more crowded gaze, in our speechless heart. Pray to become it, to give it to someone, we'd rather keep it a keepsake forever. But to that other land, alas, what can be taken? Not our power of perceiving, learned here so slowly, nothing here that's happened, nothing, but possibly suffering, above all, the hardness of life and the long endurance of love, holy untellable things. But later, when the stars have us under them, what then is the use? The stars are still better unspoken. Nor does the wanderer bring down a handful of earth from his high mountain slope to the valley, for earth too is mute. But a word he has plucked from the climbing, the yellow and blue gentian. Are we perhaps here, just to utter, house, bridge, fountain, gate, jug, fruit tree, window, at most, column, tower. But to utter them, remember, to speak in a way which the named never dreamed they could be. Isn't it the hidden purpose of this cunning earth in urging on lovers to realize in their rapture, rapture for all. Threshold. What it can mean for two lovers to foot down their threshold a little, just as the many who've come through have worn it, and ahead of the many to follow so lightly. Here is the time for words. Here 
is its home. Speak and proclaim. More than ever, the things we can live with are falling away and imageless actions usurping their place. Real acts will quickly crack their shells when what's working within them brings forth a new form. Our heart dwells between hammers like the tongue between the teeth, where it remains notwithstanding a continual creator of praise. Praise this world to the angel, not the unutterable one. You cannot impress him with the splendor you felt, for in the heaven of heavens where he feels so sublimely, you are but a beginner. Show him some simple thing then that's been changed in its passage through human ages till it lives in our hands, in the shine of our eyes, as a part of ourselves. Tell him things. He'll stand more astonished as you stood by the roper in Rome or the potter in Egypt. Show him how happy a thing can be, how innocent and ours, how even sorrow in the midst of lamenting is determined to alter, to serve as a thing or fade in a thing, to escape into beauty beyond violining. These things, whose life is a constant leaving, they know when you praise them. Transient, they trust us, the most transient, to come to their rescue. They wish us to alter them utterly within our invisible hearts into so endlessly us, whoever we may finally be. You earthly things, is this not what you want, to arise invisible in us? Is not your dream to be one day invisible? Earth, things, invisible. What if not this deep translation is your ardent aim? Earth, my loved one, I will. Believe me, you need no more of your springtimes to win me. Already one is more than my blood can endure. Beyond all the words I can speak, I am yours, as I've been from the beginning. Always you were right, and your holiest thoughts been of death, our most intimate friend. But look, I live. Oh, on what? Neither childhood nor future grows less. Abundant existence wells up in my heart. Thank you. <laughs>